0: Pray with me. Father, we lean into your love. And we ask that it would wash over us. We need to be made clean in so many places. And in so many ways. Bring us once again to the place of awe. Mystery. Curiosity and intrigue, to just simply grasp and breathe you in, that you would change us and shape us for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, if I were to tell you that what we're going to do this morning is have a healing service, I'd probably, to fit into a genre of what it is that you have in your mind that would look like, I'd have to start talking a little bit differently. We'd ramp up some music. We'd stir up a little bit of a frenzy, and I'd start saying Jesus, like every song in a Metallica line, ends with three syllables for the name Jesus, or something along those lines. That's the stereotype we sort of have, and we've seen this idea of the healing of Christ manipulated in different ways in human hands and in our own interpretations, often taken for our own glory in our own times, and as a result, we are so fearful of this idea of what it is that Jesus can do in healing, and yet I think it's one of Satan's greatest tools to use Fear and abuses within Christian history to chase us away from the very thing that God wishes to give us. Christ wishes to heal us and make us whole. To put us back together again along with all of his creation. To move everything toward the redemption and restoration and shalom of all things. As I was reflecting on how we want to go about that this summer, summer, we've had this pattern in chapel the past few years of doing something a little more expository and delving into a book of the Bible in the fall. And then something a little more thematic based on topics of interest in the spring. So this fall, we're going to follow that same pattern. And we're going to spend this fall walking through the Gospel of Mark, looking at the healing stories of Jesus and trying to tie them together to see what are the threads that are actually being communicated about what Jesus is up to in the world through these acts of healing. And what does that mean for you and me? He constantly sent the disciples out and then brought them back and told them that they went in his authority to cast out demons, to heal the land. So what does that look like for you and me and people today who've been scared off of this idea of healing simply because of a few stories of abuse? We'll start with the first text in the Gospel of Mark. You want to take your Bibles along this semester and write all over them or take notes in your phone or whatever it is that you do, I would encourage that. And we're going to walk through different aspects in these stories in the Gospel of Mark. We start with chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my Son. Whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Sometimes I think one of the greatest disadvantages we have in the way that we read the Bible is we're actually reading it through history backwards. And so it's hard for us to recapture what it would have felt like the first time somebody heard these words. Most historical best guesses tell us that this book of Mark was written and first given in the city of Rome. So you can imagine, or try with me, an audience hearing this for the very first time, because this is what would have happened. It delivered to their church, someone standing in the front and reading it, ears hearing this for the first time ever. In the city that stood as the capital of the world at that time. And in the opening line, this technical term is used, the beginning of the good news, the euangelion. Now, this is a very technical term to be speaking in the city of Rome at the center of the world's empire, because euangelion is a technical term, and everybody who was hearing it at the time would have thought that something different was gonna come in the rest of the sentence and story that follows. Euangelion is delivered in two instances in the ancient world, and only in two. Either when a battle is won on the front lines and a messenger runs back to tell everybody, guess what, you're not going to die the kingdom is safe, your life has been spared, we won. Or, when a new heir was born to Caesar or a king and a proclamation goes forth to the land, congratulations, there will be stability for one more generation, you are safe. There is an heir to the throne and he is alive. The only thing is, is that every other recorded instance of euangelion before this one is always spoken of in the plural for the sake of respect. In other words, I am announcing one piece of good news among many. It was a respect for all the other aspects of good news or battles that could have been won or heirs that could have been born. But here for the first time in history, the definite article gets given in front of this. And I imagine at the time when this was spoken, every neck in the room would have snapped up and listened to everything that was about to come. There is a battle that has been won on the front lines and this changes everything for your safety and stability and it will never be the same. There is an heir that has been born and this is the Good news, par excellence. Mark, you have my attention. What comes next? And then he puts this mashup of Old Testament texts together from Exodus and Malachi and Isaiah as he sort of talks about that this is where the unfolding of history and the culmination of the ages was all heading towards. And yet then he does this weird thing where he starts talking not about then the Messiah but about John the Baptist. And this weird, weird character who was to come first. You see, in Jewish tradition, it was believed that, of course, Elijah had to come back before the Messiah. This is the closing verse of the Old Testament. 450 years had passed since the ending of the book of Malachi, and its closing verse talked about the fact that Elijah would come first. This is why even to this day in Jewish communities, at the Seder meal, an extra plate is set out. It is the place for Elijah because we will all know that God himself is coming when Elijah shows up. He is the forerunner. He is the precursor. And so, where does John the Baptist preach? The Judean countryside. Where do you think Elijah's ministry was all based around? He faces opposition from Herod, just like Elijah did with Ahaz before him. He wears Elijah's garment, he wears the same clothing that he wore, and he has a desert diet. All of these items, bizarre as they are, are still kosher. But they're what Israel or anybody else would have eaten when they go into the wilderness. And the typology of the Old Testament tells us that in the wilderness is when God does something new. In the wilderness, God prepares his people for the next great unfolding of history. Essentially, John the Baptist is taking on symbolically in himself the nation of Israel. He's living this out like some sort of giant dramatic act. But he departs from the script when he does something different that John the Baptist or sorry, that Elijah would not have done, that every other prophet before him would not have done. He offers this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now the Jews had all kinds of ceremonial washings before you would eat and in certain ways you would do this with your dishes or before you would go into a place of worship or when you enter somebody's home and feet get washed and you'd have all this aspects of cleaning and it was like a a marker of, of their culture and who they were and sort of the purity that they believed that they held. Baptism is a foreign concept to them. Here again, everybody in the room would have been leaning forward listening to what exactly is this? This is new. I don't have a framework for this. The only baptism known to the people of the Old Testament is a proselyte baptism. It's something that a Gentile went through in order to become a Jew, it was part of the conversion process. Baptism in the Old Testament equaled conversion. I am converting from my pagan ways to become part of the people of God. And it was a baptism where you washed yourself in order that you could make yourself clean and come before God and now join the people of God, the Jewish nation. What's so shocking and a giant affront, of course, is the baptism that John preaches is one of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but his audience is no longer Gentile's. So what he's saying to the Jewish nation is you need to be converted from being Israel into being the true Israel. You yourselves need to be washed and made new and changed. You yourselves need a baptism of repentance. The word here in the text is metanoia. It literally means you need a baptism of the changing of your mind. Read yourself now back into this text. Lord, I need a baptism of the changing of my mind for the forgiveness of my sins. That's what John offers, that's the invitation. So he's followed the script, and of course, when you hear a story that you've always heard before, you follow along and you nod and you affirm, "Uh uh uh-huh, 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 and then there's this jarring moment when someone deviates from the script and says something different. That's what happens here in John the Baptist. Deviation from the script, from the narrative that everybody already thought that they knew. And this is why it's so significant. Because all the pleas and all the hopes and all these would-be pretender messiahs who came along and tried to act out the same things that John was... These zealots who would come and they would appear in the wilderness and they would tell everybody that they were the Messiah. There was a cottage industry built around would-be Messiahs at this point in time in history. These people who would come out of the woodwork and say, I'm the real deal. I'm the one. Come and follow me. I will throw off the shackles of Rome. And people would follow and then they would get slaughtered and the history would repeat itself because there's nothing more appealing to people than hope. And so people would pray on it. But now here comes this new story. And everybody's expectations are going to get shattered. All the expectations of this thing that this new coming Messiah would do. And in order to sort of get in our heads what he's really talking about here and what happens is, imagine in the same way, the Christian community today has all of its different ideas that exist about what the second coming of Christ will look like. We've got premillennialists and amillennialists and dispensationalists and postmillennialists. And you've got all these different ideas of what it's going to look like. And there'll be trumpets and an opening in the sky. And We have sort of a picture in our mind. They had pictures in their mind. They had these ideas that were going to be the signposts of what they were, and all the chatter in the rabbinical community before the time of Christ had certain passages in the Old Testament that they lifted up and talked about a whole lot that said, this is what it'll look like, this is what it'll happen when the Messiah comes. There's several texts in the Old Testament that talk about an overabundance of wine when God shows up for real, hence the opening in the book of John with Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine. The same thing is happening in this text. And in verse 10, when Jesus receives himself this baptism, this new Israel who needs to go through a changing of mind, an actual coming out of the Exodus and out of Babylon and out of all the places where they had been taken captive, all these expectations that existed for what this would-be Messiah would do are all wrapped up together and obliterated in what Jesus experiences. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. One of the passages in the Old Testament, everybody was talking about Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And so the expectation was that when the day of deliverance comes and Yahweh shows up, the heavens are going to be ripped open. And it happens at Jesus' baptism. The Spirit will be poured out again in a new way. This is always the evidence that only God himself could deliver an outpouring of the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, that's when we will know that God himself has shown up. It talks about it in Ezekiel and in Joel and in Isaiah and the prophets are all pointing to this reality. Oh, and God's voice will speak at that time because it's been silent and prophetic witness for 450 years. And from passages like Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 that talk about this voice of God again in this passage too, the voice speaks, and it names this one as my son. All sorts of great men had gone before in the Old Testament. Abraham was a friend of God. Moses, the servant of God. David, a man after God's own heart. Aaron, a man elevated by God. All of these descriptions, but none of them are called the son of God, because in the ancient world, a son doesn't just stand in the place of the father, he stands as the father, with his authority, in his place, in full deliverance. Nothing in Jewish literature expected that God would send a son. They thought God himself was coming. And so now Jesus comes. The heavens are ripped open. The voice speaks. The Holy Spirit descends. And the son, God, has come. Put all of these pieces together now at the beginning. And why am I talking about this when I said we were going to talk about the healing ministry of Jesus? Because the baptism of a changing of mind for the forgiveness of sins and an expectation of what it's going to happen when God shows up, all of these things for Israel was built around the fact that the expectation was that God will come and I will have a self-service salvation program where we are going to have God do to them what we need done to them so that we can be put back right again. This was the essence of Israel's hope. That salvation was self-serving. That it all had to do with changing the other. All the proclamations were all pointing at the other. It was Rome's fault. It was Samaritan's fault. It was the Philistines and our history's fault. It was the Babylonians. It's the Assyrians. It's everything else. And what John says to Israel is it's not everybody else. Healing, if Jesus is going to do anything in this world, if Yahweh is going to come down and change this place, healing is going to have to start with us. And John the Baptist's ministry comes and puts this gigantic mirror in front of all of Israel and says, you want change. You want salvation. It's going to start in you. If any of us want to see the healing and redemption of all things in our world, if you have relationships around you and you want to see restoration, if you've known brokenness and sin and death and pain, if you felt fear or anxiety and want to see these things done, if you read those passages and long for the day when every tear will be wiped from our eyes and we want God to claim this, the only way it happens according to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark is if healing starts with us. We need to be broken again before the cross. We need to understand that our genesis and our completion comes in the person of Christ. There and only there, you and I need to be broken again and again to find our renewal, our rebirth, there again and again. And we cannot even find a way to let our hearts be excited about the healing of the nations and of the world around us until we are first excited about the fact that Jesus wants to heal us. We need to be healed We need to be made right. We do not become a tool in God's hands for the redemption of all things until we let Him have His way within us first. Whenever something crashes in our house and I come running in and I ask the kids, What happened here? Who did this? Four hands all point at somebody else. Everybody blames somebody else all the time. You and I have this tendency to do this too. If there's anything wrong in your life right now, chances are it's somebody else's fault. Jesus came to tell us that a baptism of a change of mind for the forgiveness of our sins will start with us. And so this is the place where we start in our own healing first too. Yes, Jesus, I want you to heal the nations. Yes, Jesus, there is pain and suffering everywhere, and I want you to touch it, I want you to sweep through it, and I want you to make it new. But Jesus, start with me. Start here. That's why Jesus goes to Israel first. That's why Jesus becomes the new Israel and the new humanity. He becomes the demonstration for the entire nation that the problem isn't out there. In fact, this man of sorrows doesn't just point the finger at everybody else. He takes it all upon himself and invites everybody else's as well. If ever there was someone who didn't point the finger at everyone else and say, it's your deal. It was Jesus, the man of sorrows, who says, put it all on me. And so how can a follower of Christ begin a gospel message anywhere in this world and point the finger outside? Fruit will come in us when we allow him to have his way in this house first. God, have your way in us. Change us. Make us new. As we start and just spend a few minutes to reflect on the man of sorrows, the one who has done this, the one who needs to make us new before we can go out from here, live the vision and mission of this school, and be about the redemption of all things. We're going to create just a little bit of space and have time for you to respond to whatever it is the Spirit's stirring up inside of you. I'll ask the team, praise team, to come on forward, close us in a song. And we'll do this together. And as they find their place, will you join me in prayer? Father, this world is broken. But start with me. We long for your healing. And not just for others, but for us. Father, bring us back again ourselves before the cross. For we cannot lead a world where we have not been. Father, take us there and convict us. As your spirit continues to pour out, as your invitation continues, may we hear it loud and clear for ourselves first. In Jesus' name, amen.